I started with a bit of a bit of humor this morning. You recall, I don't want to be accused of eating like a horse. Well, I have another little one for you tonight. There was a family, a couple, married couple called the Petersons, and they had a baby boy. And Mr. Peterson announced to Mrs. Peterson that he wanted to name him Amazing, Amazing Peterson. She thought it was an odd name, but she went along. So Amazing Peterson entered life, and he was an adorable, cute little boy, and everyone said, oh, Amazing Peterson is such a lovely baby. And then, as he grew up in grade school and in high school, he was on the honor roll. Amazing was a good student, and so Amazing Peterson did well in school. In fact, he was the class president. He went off to college, and Amazing Peterson was a star guard in basketball at his varsity basketball team at college, and he would sink those outside shots, and Amazing Peterson with two from the outside. Then uh, Amazing Peterson married a, a beautiful Christian woman, and uh, they had a lovely life together. In fact, uh, God blessed Amazing, and he became the CEO of a corporation. And, of course, Mr. Amazing Peterson had board meetings and decisions to uh, make with the corporate America. And then, as he aged, uh, he went to be with the Lord. Amazing Peterson passed into the Lord's presence. And uh, they had a funeral for Amazing Peterson at Honored Christ. And then after the funeral, uh, Mrs. Peterson went to the tombstone engraver. And uh, he said, Mrs. Peterson, I'm sorry for your loss. What do you want on the stone? Amazing Peterson. She goes, no, I do not want Amazing Peterson on the stone all my life. Amazing Peterson, Amazing Peterson, Amazing Peterson. Instead, I want you to put on his tombstone, here lies a man who never felt that he paid too much income tax to the U.S. government. Why would you do that? Because everybody who'd pass his tombstone would read it and say, that's amazing. <laughs> Oh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that uh, the joy of your joy is ours in Christ. And we thank you that your word is alive and powerful, and it changes us as we receive it in a yielded and humble manner. Our desire tonight is that we would understand forgiveness for what it is, and that you would search our hearts by your Spirit, who indwells the true blood-bought child of God, that we might understand where we stand when it comes to forgiveness of others. We pray these things for the sake of the Savior. Amen. Beth and I do congratulate the Bahamas. We understand you don't have any income taxes, and I think that's great. But you may not believe it, but America does have income taxes. And the power of the IRS, the body that collects Americans' income taxes, is quite immense. If an American falls behind enough in payments of income taxes, the IRS will fine that person, levy financial penalties on that person, garnish that person's wages, confiscate in the extreme the taxpayer's property, including their houses. A man in our church in Milford, Pennsylvania, had his house confiscated. They boarded it up, put it up for auction. He lost his house. IRS has a lot of power. In fact, the IRS, if it goes far enough, can see that a man or a woman who is in tax arrears can be imprisoned for three to five years in federal prison. I want to rework and modernize a story that the Lord Jesus Christ told. You'll recognize it, I hope. There was a businessman 
who owed the IRS $30 million. The IRS found out that this man was absolutely unable to pay his $30 million debt. So the IRS ordered that his house and his cars and his vacation timeshares be liquidated to at least pay off some of the $30 million. The IRS even made proceedings where this businessman was put behind bars in prison. But then this devastated and imprisoned businessman begged and pleaded with the IRS for more time, promising to somehow raise the rest of the $30 million. Well, the businessman caught the IRS on a very unusual and good day because miraculously and totally out of character, the IRS freed the man from prison and the IRS forgave his remaining debt of $29.3 million. Incredible. As a free man, this businessman, fresh out of jail, back with his wife and kids, looking for a new job, attended his local church again. And in so doing, during the service, the businessman noticed a brother across the sanctuary from where he was seated in the morning service. And the businessman really didn't worship the Lord that Sunday in that hour because he was stewing about the thousand dollars that that brother in Christ owed him. And right after the pastor's closing prayer and benediction, that businessman went straight to the Christian brother who owed him 1,000 bucks. And he got aggressive with him. He even chest bumped him right in front of the communion table. This scene was slowed into almost slow motion for the other worshipers as they heard the raised voices and saw the unbecoming behavior and they rubbernecked like at a car accident to see what in the world would go on. And this angry businessman was overheard to say to the man that he better come up with a thousand dollars right away. The man didn't have a thousand dollars, so he begged that businessman for a little time, uh, maybe five paychecks, to set aside money from his paychecks for five paychecks. And after five paychecks, he said, I'll pay you back the thousand dollars. Well, this Christian businessman was so hot tempered and so unreasonable and so unforgiving that that was not acceptable to him. And he tried to press charges against the man who owed him $1,000 for fraud. And that man had to do some time in prison because he couldn't raise bail money. There were a lot of church folks who witnessed what happened in the church that Sunday, and they also watched what was happening to the unsuspecting Christian who just came to church to worship Christ and who didn't have $1,000 in his wallet at the time he did. These believers were outraged, and they decided to report what happened to the IRS and what that businessman had done, even though the IRS had forgiven him his remaining $229.3 million of debt. The IRS was outraged. They sent agents to that unforgiving businessman's house and they were firm and they were judgmental and they told the businessman that because he didn't forgive a lousy thousand dollar debt when he had been forgiven by them a whopping $29.3 million debt, therefore they were going to throw him back in prison. This time, no bail, no parole. Of course, this is a modernization of the Lord Jesus' teaching on forgiveness which is found in Matthew 18 verses 21 to 35. 
And tonight's sermon is about forgiveness. And the main idea in what we're going to see in God's Word this evening is that the forgiven are to forgive. The forgiven are to forgive. That's what I want us to remember tonight. If you only take one thing away in your purse or in your pocket, is that the forgiven are to forgive. And I have three subpoints under the main idea that the forgiven are to forgive. Are you ready for these three subpoints? Number one, to forgive is godly. Number two, to forgive is possible. And number three, to forgive is healthy. To forgive is godly, to forgive is possible, and to forgive is healthy. Jesus told that story in Matthew 18, which I modernized, because Peter had come to him and asked him how often Peter should forgive. Peter floated the idea of forgiving someone seven times. And I'm sure that Peter thought that was generous because the rabbis of that day taught that you only had to forgive someone three times. That's what they taught. Once you had forgiven someone three times, the rabbi said you had no further obligation to forgive that person. So Peter, old Peter, doubled three to get six, and he added one just for good measure. He said, Lord, should I forgive someone seven times? You can almost understand between the lines that he was going to think that Jesus said, oh, that's excellent. But you know what Jesus said, perhaps? Jesus said, no, not seven times, but I say 70 times, seven times. In other words, Jesus Christ taught Peter back then, and Jesus Christ is teaching the man in the pulpit and the men and women in the pews tonight that we should stop counting. When it comes to forgiving an individual, we should stop counting. We should have unlimited forgiveness for people who do us wrong, and we should stop keeping score. You know the wonderful verses in 1 Corinthians 13 on love, which is God's love, which is possible for us to have when the Holy Spirit controls us and we obey the Scriptures. Listen to what it says about God's love, which should be our love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. is not provoked. Watch this. does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through 8a. So this brings us to our first point tonight. Are you ready? The first point under the big idea that the forgiven are to forgive is this. To forgive is godly. For us to forgive is godly. God's love does not take into account a wrong suffered. God's love forgives 70 times 7 and beyond. God's love forgives without limit. And so I ask you, and I ask myself, tonight, do you owe anyone forgiveness? Do you owe anyone forgiveness, either living or dead? Do you owe anyone forgiveness? Do you owe forgiveness to your spouse? Or could you owe tonight forgiveness to your employer? Or could you owe forgiveness to someone who's in this church family? 
Do you owe anyone forgiveness? Someone has said, and it's true, that a good marriage is a union of two good forgivers. And by the way, those of you who aren't married, if you think getting married is to make you happy, you're wrong. To get married is to make each of you holy. If you don't want to know what your sins are, then don't get married. But if you are interested in knowing what your sins are so that you can confess them and renounce them, by all means get married. Because God's will for marriage is a union of two good forgivers. That's a good marriage, a Christ-honoring marriage. And tonight, has there been a time as I'm starting to preach God's word about forgiveness that the Holy Spirit's been tapping you on the heart and convicting you that your attitude, perhaps when you came in, that you've forgiven John Doe quite enough, thank you. That the Spirit of God is tapping you on the heart and saying, that doesn't honor Jesus. That needs to change. Or could you have come in tonight thinking somehow, in the even worse, that you are entitled to hate somebody? Maybe a person who sexually abused you. Maybe a person who swindled you out of your life savings. Maybe a person who slandered you in the community so that it affected your family. Maybe someone who raped you. Maybe you come tonight and the Spirit of God is convincing you that the attitude of entitlement you may have come in with to hate an individual isn't honoring to Jesus. The need, of course, to forgive others is a universal need. There is no preacher who can walk into any local assembly of believers and be right in assuming that forgiveness is not an issue. It's a universal human condition. We need to be better forgivers. And up-to-date, 100% forgiveness won't be actual until heaven, let's face it. But this fact doesn't mean that we preachers should stop preaching the word when it comes to a call to forgiveness. And this fact that perfect forgiveness of each other awaits glorification also shouldn't mean that we ever excuse ourselves to be unforgiving. And so remember, I hope the big idea of tonight's message is that the forgiven are to forgive. And the first sub-point under that that we've seen is that to forgive is godly. It resembles God. To forgive is actually the DNA of the truly born-again Christian. That we forgive is truly the DNA of every one of us who have been forgiven by Christ. And to forgive is godly because it bears a family resemblance to God when we forgive. It bears a family resemblance to a forgiving God when we as his child forgive. And so it's only reasonable that we forgive since we have been forgiven so much by God. It's the DNA of the true Christian to forgive. It's the bearing of a family resemblance to God that we forgive. And it is only reasonable that we forgive since God has forgiven us a huge debt. So listen to what the Lord Jesus said at the end of that story that I modernized with you. 
Listen to what he said when he addressed the unforgiving slave. That was the man in my story who was in trouble with the IRS for $29. million. Listen to what Jesus said to the unforgiving slave in Matthew 18.35. He said, My heavenly Father will also do the same for you if each of you does not forgive his brother from the heart. And what was the same? What will the heavenly Father do to you? If you do not forgive your brother from the heart, well, verse 34, the preceding verse says, handed him over to torturers. Jesus said to the unforgiving slave, if you refuse to forgive, you will be handed over to the torturers, which is a picture of a literal hell. By the way, hell is not an idea. Hell is not a philosophy. Hell is not a literary concept. Hell is literal. It's a literal place. Jesus taught more about hell than he did about heaven. Now, was Jesus saying when the unforgiving slave would refuse to forgive, he'd be handed over to the torturers, was Jesus saying that the child of God, the redeemed person, the saved person, the converted person can lose their salvation over not forgiving others? No. We believe that the grace that saves us is the same grace that keeps us secure in our salvation, right? If you have your Bibles open, please open to John 10. I want to show you the security of of the believer in Christ, that we cannot lose our salvation. Once we are saved, we are always saved. Not because of our grip on Christ, because of God's, Christ's grip on us. Now watch this. John 10, starting at verse 27. Jesus is teaching. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now watch this. First of all, before you watch my hands, when Jesus says never, he means never. There is no circumstance that would cause you to lose your salvation. And Jesus says, watch my hands, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one, including yourself, shall snatch them out of my hand. Watch, the Father who has given them to me, whoops, sorry, Jesus Christ's hand, the Father who has given them to me is greater than all. So you are in the Father's figurative hand if you're saved. That's security. But there's more. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So the Father's figurative hand is grasping you if you're saved and you're secure in your salvation, but there's more. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So the Father has given you to the Son, placed you in his nail-scarred hand, That's enough security, but then the Father closes his figurative hand on you, and you have double security. No one can break God the Son or God the Father's grip on you. That doesn't mean we ever abuse God's grace, as we learned in Romans 6 this morning, but it means we're secure. And look at this. The two hands of security, and then verse 30, I and the Father are one. So if you move from my hands to my wrists to my forearms to my elbows to my shoulders to my neck to my head, there is one will of God in keeping you secure. 
I and the Father are one. So Jesus Christ was not saying that a saved person loses his salvation and goes to hell for not forgiving others in this life. What he was teaching, people who claim to be Christians, but who characteristically, habitually refuse to forgive other people who offend them, probably not are Christians at all. Because the DNA of the forgiven is that we forgive. The family resemblance of the forgiven is that we forgive. The reasonability of the forgiven is that we forgive. And so Jesus was saying there are some people that know the language of the church, but they do not know the Lord of the church by saving faith. They profess to know Christ as Savior, but they actually do not possess Christ. They're playing church. They're wearing a mask that isn't a reality of their hearts and their lives. They are actors. These people, they play the part of being saved, but they are not saved. And their habitual characteristic life pattern of refusing to forgive other people proves they're not saved. Because it's the DNA of true Christians that we forgive. Because true Christians are to bear a family resemblance to our forgiving Heavenly Father. And because it's only reasonable for true Christians to forgive others. Yes, the first point tonight is to forgive is godly. And so are you truly saved? I believe probably the majority of you tonight are truly saved. You've come out on a Sunday night. You could have done many other things. But you have a hunger for God's word. You pant as deer for the water to worship Jesus. I believe most of us are saved tonight. Good. You're genuine. Prove that you are genuine by being the best forgiver of others that you can be. No exceptions. It is best that we forgive everyone. Everyone. The forgiven are to forgive. The big idea tonight. And the second point, to forgive is godly. Now let's go to the second sub-point. It's not only that to forgive is godly, but secondly, to forgive is possible. Turn to Ephesians 4, will you? Ephesians chapter 4. I want us to look at just two verses. Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 31 and 32. And as you are turning to those verses, I want to just state the obvious. God would not command any of us to do the impossible. As an earthly father, I will never command my son or daughter to do something I know is impossible for them. That would be mean. God the Father never commands any of us to do the impossible. What God does command of us, he makes possible for us to do by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Now listen to Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, please. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Will you notice, please, from these two verses that they command us to forgive? It's not a suggestion. It's not that if you get around to it. It's not if you feel like it. It's a command to forgive. And second, will you notice these verses command us to first put some things away, far away from us, some emotions, some thoughts are to be put far away from us before we would ever try to forgive somebody. 
I'll read the verses again, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So here we see that there are going to be some things, some ideas, some emotions, which Satan would love for us to hang on to because these will block us forgiving others. These things, these ideas, these emotions, which we decide to put away from us, will make us able to forgive others. And six emotions are listed in the verses. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Now, will you note that all of these six emotions will hijack you when it comes to forgiving somebody? If you have any one of these thoughts or emotions, you'll be hijacked in forgiving people you need to forgive. The sea is so beautiful in Bahamas. It just, <laughs> it just blows Beth and I away, the turquoise and the d- deep blue and just how pretty the water is, the sea. You could look at it this way, that God commands you to take these six ideas and emotions and throw them overboard from the boat of your life. But first, tie an anchor around each of them so each of these thoughts and emotions will sink far to the bottom of the sea. And what are these emotions again? Let me unpack them for you. Bitterness. Bitterness is resentfulness. And it stops forgiveness. Wrath is irrational rage. In America, we call it road rage. Some Americans shoot each other at red lights because of road rage. But it's not just at a red light that people can have rage. People can have rage for other people right in a church body. And so bitterness is resentfulness. It stops forgiving. Wrath is irrational rage, and it blocks forgiving. Anger, this is verbal or, or excuse me, this is stale, kept too long in your heart and mind anger. This anger is stale, kept too long in your heart or in your mind, anger. And that kind of anger will block you forgiving somebody. Clamor. Clamor is verbal or physical fighting. I never had any fights in school, mostly because I was a scrawny guy. But I fought with my mouth. My tongue could be so razor sharp. And I could say things that were so cutting and hurting to somebody that I didn't like. That's clamor. Clamor is verbal or physical fighting, and it blocks forgiving. Slander is bad-mouthing someone else, which tears them down. The will of God for us in our relationships is to build each other up. But how easy it is in our flesh and our sinfulness to tear people down. That's slander. Usually know you're slandering when you shut up when you see the person you're slandering about. Change the subject. We're to put away bitterness, resentfulness, wrath, irrational rage, anger, stale, kept too long, anger, clamor is verbal or physical fighting. We're to put that away. Slander is bad-mouthing another person. We're to put that away because it blocks forgiving. And the last one is malice. Malice is wicked ill will towards someone. Planning revenge. Oh, yeah? You did that to me? (laughs) I'll get around to it. 
That's malice. And we must set aside malice intentionally because it blocks forgiveness. And will you please notice with me, when it comes to these things that have anchors tied around them, these six things, and we're to pitch them out of the boat of our life to sink to the bottom of the sea, will you please notice that reducing these emotions will not be enough? 50% less bitterness, 50% less wrath, 50% less anger, 50% less clamor, 50% less slander won't free you up to forgive anybody. Because the word says, don't reduce these things. It says to put them away from you. Don't welcome them into your thinking. Don't welcome them into your speech. Don't welcome them into your actions. Put them away so that you can forgive others. And Scripture, when all is used in Scripture, it means all. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. It all has to be tied to an anchor and thrown out of the boat of your life and sunk to the bottom of the sea. And do you know when you've done it? You say, Pastor Elliot, how, how do I know if I put anchors on these things and thrown them out of my boat and they're sunk to the bottom of the sea? How can I know? Is there a practical way that I can know that I've done this? Well, yes, there's an easy way to know. You can know that you have put away all these six things when you truly forgive a person who's hurt you. You say, but I can't forget what she did to me. No, we're human, and we can't forget what she did to you, maybe, but you've forgiven her if you don't remember what she did with the emotional charge that you used to. And how do we know that we have truly forgiven someone? This, too, is easy. How do you know that you've truly forgiven someone? It's easy. It's simple. You know that you've truly forgiven someone when you can be kind and tender-hearted to them after they've hurt you. It's that simple. When you can be kind and tender-hearted to someone you once didn't forgive, then you have forgiven them. I saw a lovely example uh, where we live in the Pocono Mountains in northeast Pennsylvania there is a large tract of land that is the Quinn's farm. And the Quinn's are a lovely, tight-knit family that farm. And when I drive to the church to work in my car, the school bus usually is right ahead of me, and it stops at the Quinn's driveway, and two little girls who were part of the Quinn's family trundle onto that school bus. The door is shut, and the bus pulls away slowly from the farm. And Alan Quinn, who is a friend of mine, maybe. 30-something years old, and his wife stand in one of the fields of the Quinn farm, and they wave to the bus until it is out of sight. They wave. And the last time I noticed, it was so cute, so tender-hearted, the both of them were waving to the school bus until it was out of sight to their daughters, and the mom had a Winnie the Pooh doll, and she had Winnie's arm waving while she waved. So cute. Kind and tender-hearted. Do you see it there in verse 32? And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. It's simple to know whether you've forgiven that person if you can be kind to them and you can be tender-hearted to them. That's easy to know when you've done that. It's also easy to know when you haven't done this. 
So when we can be kind and tender-hearted to that person who hurt us, then we have properly forgiven that person, but not until we can be kind and tender-hearted to that person have we properly forgiven them. And something else. When we are kind and tender-hearted to a person we once didn't forgive, we can pray good for them. Oh, Lord, bless him. Bless his family. Give him good health. May he know your love. May he know your peace. When you can pray good for someone that you once did not forgive, you know that you've properly forgiven that person. And aren't we glad tonight that with Christ and with the indwelling Holy Spirit, it is possible for us to forgive or God would not command us to do it. So far we've seen the big idea that overarches these verses is the forgiven are to forgive. We've seen the sub-point one, to forgive is godly. Second point, to forgive is possible. And we go to our third and last point tonight, to forgive is healthy. To forgive is healthy. Look back at verse 26 of Ephesians 4. Would you? We're going to read verse 26 and 27. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. That's an interesting pair of verses. You heard it right, that the first part of verse 26 commands us to actually be angry. It must be possible in some way that we can be angry and not sin because our Lord Jesus was angry, right? He drove the money changers out of the temple saying that they had reduced his father's house of prayer to a a place of merchandise. So Jesus had a righteous indignation anger, and that's the kind of anger that we're actually commanded to have. When a child is molested and we hear about it, we should have righteous indignation about that. When someone steals part of a deceased family member's inheritance through an underhanded legal move, we should have righteous indignation about that. But will you notice with me that in the text... Even this kind of righteous indignation, anger that we're commanded to have only has a 24-hour shelf life. Only has a 24-hour shelf life. When I was in the sixth grade, we had a teacher that I think did me in on sour milk. He had an experiment in the hot winter classroom. We had test tubes of milk and we had we had the experiment of watching it curdle over a few days made us taste it to see how sour it was you ought to see me now when I buy milk I get my head and shoulders in the cooler and I fish back to the milk jugs that are the very very back and I check the date because I never want to taste sour milk again I promise you that God says that even righteous indignation anger has a 24-hour shelf life. And if we hang on to even righteous indignation anger longer than the sun setting on the day we feel it, then it will curdle. It will go bad. It will make you sour. We must address the righteous indignation anger that we feel before sundown the day we feel it. That takes discipline. That takes obedience. This is how it works. Maybe there's some high school students here tonight. I hope there are. Let's say one of your teachers knows you're a believer. 
And subjectively, as she grades your exam paper, she does so with an unfair bias and solely because you're known to be a born-again Christian and she downgrades your paper. That should raise some righteous indignation, anger in you. But, however, before you go to sleep the evening of the day when you got that exam paper back, you must forgive Mrs. Smith, the teacher, the unfair and biased teacher. You must forgive her from your heart Because if you don't promptly forgive her, it's you that suffers. And you give the devil an opportunity. Verse 26, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. That's interesting. Someone properly has said that holding on to angry unforgiveness is drinking poison and hoping it will kill the other person. If we don't choose to forgive by sunset, it gives Satan a chance to mess around with us. If we don't decide to forgive by sunset, it is unhealthy for our minds, for our emotions, and for our bodies. Doctors Frank Minereth and Paul Meyer are born-again medical doctors, psychiatrists who love the Lord Jesus and his word, and they are on the faculty of Dallas Seminary. And they taught us in the seminary that medically speaking, medically speaking, the most common cause of clinical depression is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is that serious. Why? Why is unforgiveness the most common medical cause for clinical depression? Because medically, an unforgiving heart depletes two brain amines, dopamine and serotonin. And when dopamine and serotonin are depleted in a human brain, clinical depression happens. Now, clinical depression is something that isn't feeling the blues. We all feel the blues sometimes. Clinical depression, I have been clinically depressed in my life. Maybe some of you have. Clinical depression has these symptoms. The loss of proper sleep patterns, the loss of proper appetite, proper focus, the loss of proper interest in things that normally interest the person. Clinical depression is a sense of hopelessness, sometimes a hopelessness to the point of suicidal thoughts, and sometimes, if untreated, clinical depression can end in suicide. It's serious. And what does the unforgiveness which causes clinical depression look like? Bitterness, wrath, verse 31, anger, clamor, slander, malice. That's the roadway, that's the highway to clinical depression. And so we're learning tonight from God's word that to forgive, the forgiven not to forgive, And that to forgive is godly, to forgive is possible, and to forgive is healthy. One more thing. Again, verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Who do you suppose is to be our prime example of that kind of forgiveness? 
that kind of putting away of ideas and emotions that give the devil an opportunity and give depression, clinical depression, a foothold. Who is the prime example of that? None other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our prime example of forgiving is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is the prime example of being kind and being tenderhearted and forgiving enemies? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 32. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Jesus is our supreme example of proper forgiveness. Nailed to a cross, dehydrating, suffocating, bleeding, dying. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, the only way that the Savior could say that was that he himself personally had first chosen to forgive his executioners and his nation before he called for God the Father to do it too. And so I close with a direct and blunt question. Who tonight are you daring not to forgive? Has the Holy Spirit of God been putting that person on your heart as I've been preaching? Who, before walking in tonight, have you been daring not to forgive? And would you change your heart? Maybe they're in the sanctuary tonight on the other side of the church. Would you humble yourself and would you walk across after the benediction and would you tell that person that you forgive them? even if they never ask you for forgiveness? Or would you go home tonight, before you turn on the television, before you have an evening snack, before you go for a walk, could you pick up the phone? Or could you phone that person that you need to forgive? Say, I'm sorry. God spoke to me tonight and I need to forgive you. And I'm calling you to tell you I forgive you. It's done, I forgive you. Because the forgiven are to forgive. And because forgiving is godly. And forgiving is possible. And forgiving is healthy. Beth, if you'd come and minister in song, please listen to the words of this song. We can hold
Thank you very much, Beth, for your ministry. I'm going to ask you to please stand as we uh, bring our service to a close. I certainly want to thank Pastor Elliot as well for the ministry of the Word with us. Our Father, we are so glad and delighted that we were here this evening. Thank you for reminding us that the forgiven is to forgive. Thank you for reminding us that it is godly, that it is possible, and that it is healthy to forgive. Thank you for reminding us that holding on to Jesus, it has so much more benefits. Our Father, as we leave 
this place geographically, that we will go out into the context in which you would call each of us, so that we might indeed go with a mind to forgive. And Father, it's just if the Son has not already said, Lord, we pray that if there is any that we have not forgiven, that we will instantaneously forgive, so that we do not allow the devil to get a foothold in our lives. So, Father, it is our desire to honor you with this truth in our own lives. And so as we leave here again, we ask your blessing on us as we travel to our very soon and prepare to, again, worship you in the context that you give us in the days ahead. These things we ask with thanksgiving. In your Son's name, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.